Well, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, as we continue our life-changing look at Jesus and His teaching. This morning, we find ourselves concluding our look at John chapter 6, and so we'll be in verses 60 through 71. So John 6, 60 through 71. Let's open in a time of prayer. Father, even as I've preached this sermon once today, I just feel like this is such a hard thing to look at. Lord, I just I pray that you would help me to have the compassion and love and concern of Christ, to have the faith of Christ. Help me to feed and to lead your sheep well as we look at a rather hard teaching. May your people feel loved, equipped, and encouraged to love and good deeds May unbelievers be drawn to yourself. For your glory we ask, amen. This morning, God's word presents us with a sobering warning. Here's a warning in a nutshell. This is what we're gonna learn this morning. That it is possible to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus and not be a believer. That it is possible to follow after Jesus and to listen to his teaching and get excited about what he's doing and not be a born again, heaven bound believer. I've preached messages like this in the past, and I know the potential that I have to create doubt in you, doubt in your salvation. I want you to know that's not my goal whatsoever this morning. But if you are here today, and you've been following Jesus at a distance, and you've been playing games, and you've not been clinging to Christ, you've not been doing what he says, well, this is a sober warning that you just might be a disciple and not be a believer. And I don't have any way to soften that message, but it doesn't need to be softened because if that's you, you need to repent and you need to come to Christ. Here's the text. Look at verse 60. When many of his, what? Disciples. When many of his disciples heard it, the teaching of Jesus, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that who? His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending, ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you. Who's the you there? His disciples. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the, it is granted him by the Father. Now after this, many of his disciples, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. This morning, we're going to have three points, but we really only have one big point. It's what we're going to spend 90% of our time on, and I've already alluded it to it. Here's the point. It is possible to be a disciple of Jesus and not be a believer. It is possible to be a disciple of Jesus and not be a believer. Man, I went back this week, I counted, I think we're, this is message 86 on Jesus and the life-changing look that we're looking or taking it at Jesus. And for a great many of those messages, we have seen a huge crowd following Jesus. Massive. If you'll remember, even with John chapter 6, when we started John chapter 6, about six weeks ago, I think, it started off with Jesus and his disciples actually trying to get a little relief from this crowd. They tried to escape this crowd. They're in Capernaum. Jesus and his disciples, they say, hey, let's withdraw to the wilderness. They, 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 they float over in their boat to Bethsaida, and they go off into the wilderness. Now, this crowd, they're so eager to be around Jesus, to hear what Jesus has to see, to, or to hear what Jesus had to say and to, to see what Jesus was doing. They we're told in Mark, or maybe it's Luke, that they ran from Capernaum to Bethsaida where they were. They ran the six plus miles to go be with Jesus. They were very enthusiastic about being around Jesus. Six miles, that's dedication. I think if you counted up all the miles I've ever ran in my life, it would be less than six miles. But these people were zealous to be with him. Of course, that afternoon, 
They were there, they didn't have any food, and so Jesus ends up feeding what the scriptures tell us, 5,000 men. That's about 20,000 plus people total. Huge crowd, massive. Those people were so uh, excited about Jesus, the potential of Jesus, they wanted to make him king, and Jesus said, I don't want anything to do with that, and so he withdrew further into the wilderness, and so a lot of the crowd dissipated. There's still a bunch of people there, though, in Bethsaida, the next day, they wake up, and they're like, where's Jesus? And somehow they figured out that he was back in Capernaum with his disciples. And so they run back to be with Jesus. These people were devoted. They thought they were disciples. As a matter of fact, everybody around thought they were disciples. The Apostle John here, we pointed it out as I was reading, calls him, three times he calls him, his disciples, Jesus' disciples. And they're gathered in the local church, the synagogue there, and Jesus is teaching this crowd, much like Jesus is teaching this crowd this morning. What do we find them talking about? Well, they're talking about John 6. They're talking about what we've been learning about for the past several weeks that we've been in John 6, the bread of life discourse. Can I just remind you of some of the things they've talked about? Flip back to verse 25. And when they, this crowd, and later they're called disciples, when these disciples found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So let's just pause for a second. Let's be reminded that these people were seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. They wanted him to meet their felt needs. Yesterday they gave him a free lunch and they're looking for another one. And Jesus says in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. He says, don't run six miles to get another free lunch for me. But work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. You don't earn it. He'll give it to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Of course, they say, we want this bread. And Jesus says, I'm not talking about bread. He's talking about himself. And you don't work for it. The only way you can have this bread is through faith. And I just don't get it. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jump down to verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. This is the will of God. That everyone who looks on the Son, that is, everybody who looks and sees Jesus and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's Jesus' main point of the sermon. He says, 
Behold the Son. Behold Jesus. See him. Believe in him. And the moment you do, you have eternal life. And he will raise you from the dead on the last day. And you will enjoy him forever. That's his point in John 6. And then he uses bread. And he uses his flesh. And he uses his blood as illustrations to show you that you need to consume him. Don't get lost in all the blood and bread and flesh language. That's the point. You see, what happened was the Jews here that were at Capernaum, these disciples, they got lost in the metaphors. They weren't able to compute what Jesus was saying. And Jesus will give us some commentary on why that happens later on. He says it's the spirit that gives life. It's the spirit that helps you see these things. The flesh is of no help of all at all. And what these folks were doing is they were trying to interpret. They were trying to take in what Jesus was saying according to the flesh, according to their, their natural understanding. And there was no illumination from the Holy Spirit. Let's read some of the tricky language. Look at verse 53, just so you can be reminded of it. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Listen, if you're not sure what that means and you weren't here last week, we, we, we preached through this. I worked through this last Sunday, so I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon online. Verse 60, our text for today. When many of his disciples heard it, heard this teaching, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now when Jesus, or when these folks say this is a hard saying, what they're not saying is that this is hard to understand. That's not the proper interpretation here. What they're saying is this is offensive this is hard to agree with. This is hard to accept. Jesus is offending them. When they ask who can listen to it, they're asking, how in the world can we believe this offensive teaching? And you say, how do you know that that's what this text, well, verse 61, or what that means there, that this is a hard saying. Verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, do you take what? Offense to this. He doesn't say, are you having trouble understanding what I'm saying? Let me clear things up. No. They're offended. Why? Because they came to Jesus. They ran. They literally ran to Jesus. But they were looking for one thing. And Jesus gave him something else. This Jesus fella. Well, he isn't quite what I was expecting him to be. 
He's not what I came out here for. Can I tell you what had happened? They'd been under some really bad teaching about the Bible. They'd they'd grown up in their traditions listening to their rabbis and their teachers, and they were under some really bad teaching. And so when they were met with the God of the scriptures, the Jesus of the scriptures, they found him unlike what they expected. Friend, that is not unlike our own day and age. This has been a tactic from the evil one from the very beginning. Let's make Jesus sound and be like something he's not. That way, when people go looking for him, they'll be disappointed. And so often the message that you hear today from these teachers is that Jesus is a genie in the bottle. You trust in him, you pray just right, you have enough faith, poof, he pops out of the bottle. And he'll give you whatever you want. Health, riches, he'll heal your kids, give you a big house, nice truck. And so people go looking for this Jesus and when they find him, they're disappointed. They find him to not be what they thought he was. You remember that's exactly what happened with these guys. Verse 26 told us that they were looking for another free lunch from Jesus. They wanted him to meet their felt needs. Jesus said, no, I'm not your genie. In verses 14 and 15, it told us that these folks, they liked Jesus so much, they were going to push their political agenda on him and make him king. She said, no thanks. In verses 30 and 31, we find them trying to manipulate Jesus into performing more miracles. Jesus said, that's not why I'm here. On top of all of this, this group of so-called disciples, they were, they were unteachable. They weren't willing to change what they believed. They weren't willing to accept the fact that maybe, maybe their favorite teachers were wrong. And so they were more inclined to believe their favorite teacher than they are inclined to believe Jesus. And so when they are confronted with his hard teachings, they're disappointed. They're clearly offended by what he's just said about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. You see, according to their rock-solid theology... He's wrong. According to their theology, he's going against the Bible. Who does this guy think he is? This is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? They're offended. And so they are resolved in this, we're going to see it in just a moment, 
If Jesus isn't going to tell me what I want to hear, if he's not going to tickle my ears, if he's not going to give me what I want, the reason I came to him in the first place, and if he's not going to start a revolt against this Roman oppressive government, then I don't want anything to do with him. So what do they do? They decide to put their hope in someone or something else. Verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? He says, you think this is offensive? You think what I just said about eating my flesh and drinking my blood is offensive? Just wait till you hear what's coming next. Verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? This is offensive on so many levels. They're already upset that he said that he had come down from heaven. And now he's saying, I'm about to go back up there. And what he's referring to here, it's hard for us to see, but I'm going to explain it to you the best I can, is he's not just talking about when he ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1. He's talking about the events immediately preceding that, namely his crucifixion and his resurrection and then his ascension. D.A. Carson has been really helpful with me, in me, showing me that in the gospel of John, John, when he talks about Jesus being raised up and ascending into heaven, he's not just talking about that Acts 1 event. No, from the very beginning of his ministry, back in John 3, when John talks, or when Jesus talks about being lifted up, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. He said that he'd have to be lifted up on a pole like the snake was lifted and set on the pole in the Old Testament so that anybody that was bitten by the snakes or the scorpions, whatever they were, they could come and they could look at the snake on the pole and be healed. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be healed of your sins, I'm going to have to be raised up onto a cross and you're going to have to look to him on the cross for you to be healed eternally. That's what Jesus has in mind when he's talking about being lifted up and ascending. And then what happens after he was on the cross and he died for our sins, he raised from the dead. And it is then that his 11 disciples that were left saw him ascend into the heavens. Let me just back up. Are you guys doing okay? For Jesus, the king, remember, they want to make him king. For him to suggest that he would die on a Roman cross was unthinkable to the Jews. That the king, that the Messiah, what's the king and the Messiah supposed to do according to the bad teaching they had been getting? He was supposed to come and do what to Rome? Conquer it. 
That's what their hope was in this Messiah, that he would come and conquer this oppressive Roman government that was stealing from them, making them pay all kinds of crazy taxes. And what Jesus is saying here is that I haven't come to conquer Rome through a military battle. I've come to allow Rome to nail me to a cross. Not so that this governmental oppression can be lifted, but that the oppression of your sin and evil and the devil can be taken from you. Utter foolishness to these Jews to hear something like that, a message. You think he's saying to these folks that Jewish, that, that, that it's a hard teaching that I'm the bread of life. Well, just wait till I tell you that the Romans are gonna kill me on a pole. This is where D.A. Carson is really helpful in his clarity. If I've confused you a little bit, just listen to what he has to say. He writes, however offensive eating flesh and drinking blood may be, how much more offensive is the crucifixion of the Messiah to these Jews? The very idea is outrageous, bordering on blasphemous, obscenity, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. You understand it would be the same. Just go with this illustration with me, okay? It would be the same if we were going to take our strong, confident, competent, fearless president And tell all Americans that the way that America is going to be saved is by letting our strong, competent, confident president be stripped naked in front of the world, beaten by our enemies, whipped by our enemies, spat upon by our enemies made to walk through the streets naked, carrying his cross, taking him to a hill so all the world can see, and standing there, the Roman, the, our enemies would take our fearless leader, if you will, and nail him to a cross, and then kill him for all the world to see. Are you kidding me? That's... That's how your plan is there, uh, Jesus? That is precisely the plan. Carson goes on. How is this the plan? Listen to this. He says, the moment of Jesus' greatest humiliation and shame and degradation is the moment of his glorification. It is in that moment that the path of his return to glory, the glory he had with the Father before the world began, it is that path in which he chose to walk, to glory. The hour when the servant of the Lord is despised and rejected by men, when he is pierced for our transgression and, trust for our, and crushed, for our iniquities is the very portal to the time when he is raised, when he is lifted up, and he is highly exalted. 
You see, it's on the cross of Christ that all that makes sense to our flesh is turned upside down. The way to heaven is not a way of fleshly glory and brilliance according to the flesh, according to how we operate. It is a way of shame. This is why we sing this song with that line in it, Lord of our shame. You see, it is by taking our shame, our sin, and bearing it on the cross, that is the way that he got rid of our shame, dealt with our sin once and for all, cast it as far as the east is from the west, and he was lifted up, and he was glorified. The way of the cross is foolishness to the Jews. It is folly to the Gentiles. But for those who are saved, it is our only hope our only hope of glory. If you're offended about the flesh and blood, wait till you see me on the cross. And then he gives commentary in verses 63 and 64. You're not going to understand this, you unbelieving disciples. You're not going to understand this. That's because it's the Spirit who gives life. It's the Spirit that helps us see these things. It's the Holy Spirit that God has to give to us. These things are spiritually understood. You can't understand them without the Holy Spirit. The flesh is of no help. If you're just going to sit back and judge this based upon flesh and reason and your ability to discern and understand, you're never going to get it. These disciples never got it. We are utterly dependent upon God, the Holy Spirit, to shine light in our dark hearts that we might see Christ. But oh, when we see him, when we behold him on the cross, bearing our sin, all our guilt, knowing that he was our substitute, and knowing that in that moment of shame and suffering, he was blazing our trail to be reconciled with God. Oh, then we find that he and what he did is our only hope. And as followers of Jesus, we find ourselves walking that same Calvary road, the crucified life, crucified with Christ, no longer living, but the life that we live, we live by faith in Christ. And suddenly we're not so afraid of shame. We don't mind being embarrassed 
because we know that it is the road of humility and contrition that leads to glory. See, if you don't get the cross, you'll be a disciple that bolts when the suffering and the shame comes. But when we understand the cross, the suffering makes sense. Suddenly, Barb losing her mom makes sense. This world's not Barb's home. It's not her mom's home. We set our hope on glory where Bob's, Barb's mom now resides. And now, more than ever, Barb longs for. Because the things of this earth grow strangely dim in light of the cross. But there are some of you disciples who do not believe. That's what verse 64 says. There's some of you who do not believe. Friend, leave the crowd. Draw near to Christ. Don't settle for looking at Jesus from a distance. Don't settle for these false pictures that these false teachers paint of Jesus. See him. Behold him. Believe in him. Verse 66 after this, many of his disciples, many of his disciples, they turned back and they no longer walked with him. It is one of the most sobering, one of the most heartbreaking passages, verses in all of Scripture. We've been laboring now for two and a half years looking at Jesus, this life-changing look How heartbreaking would it be if we came to an end and after seeing him, with, after being presented with him week after week, you remained unchanged. And in the moments of temptation, you turn and you stop following him. When the hard days come, you stop from following him. How sad would it be after all this time looking and beholding at Christ? You were still, if you were still among the crowd. And so we find Jesus this morning pushing us, if you will, with his words, pushing us closer to him. Stop chasing after these other things. 
Because friends, it is possible to be a disciple without being a born again, heaven bound believer in Jesus. Judas, Judas is the quintessential example of this. Three years with Jesus, he was fed by the bread, he was fed by the fish, he saw the miracles, he heard the teaching, he even got up close and personal with Jesus. Jesus picked him to be among the closest group, the 12. And after all of it, he betrayed Christ and hung himself. The ultimate picture of what we do when we see Christ and we do not believe. Suicide. It is possible to be a disciple and not be a born-again, heaven-bound believer. Which leads us to our second point for this morning. It's possible to be a disciple without being a believer, but our second point is this. It is impossible to be a believer and not be a disciple. It is impossible to be a believer and not be a follower. I mean, when we see him, when we behold him, when we behold the cross, it's impossible to not go after that because it is glorious. You see, let's just read verse 66. Let's look at it again. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples, they turned back and they walked away from him. Why? They didn't believe. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Notice Judas doesn't answer at this point. It's Simon. He says in verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. We have believed. That's the difference between those who are seeing Jesus and keeping at a distance, him at a distance, and the eleven. They saw Christ and they believed. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the DNA that is found in every believer. When the going gets tough, when things don't go our way, when we find something in Scripture that's hard to believe, hard to swallow, when trials come, when te Satan tempts us to despair, when we're tempted to turn around and walk away, the resolute, spirit-given answer of the believer is where in the world would we go? How could I leave you? I'd be lying to say I've never been tempted to leave him. Jesus, this is too hard. This trial is too difficult. 
God, I thought this would be easier. God, I thought that if I did this and I did that for you, that that meant that my life would be easy. Uh-uh. Oh, Lord, I don't know if I can go on. But where else would I go? You, you alone have the words of eternal life. And I have come to believe and to know that despite my doubt, that you are the Holy One of God. Oh, true disciple, there is room for struggle. There is room for doubt. But when you get through the muck and the mire, the bedrock truth is where else would you go? For Christ alone is the Holy One of God. And this is what we know, and this is what we believe. You see, by God's grace and his unfailing faithfulness, the believer, that we still wrestle with sin, we still wrestle with doubt, we still have our flesh as a part of us, the believer, we never ultimately turn from Christ. And that's not because I'm special or you're special or that we're like super strong or super committed. That's not it at all. It's that he's super strong and he is super committed and he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Nothing, absolutely nothing, oh dear believer, can separate you from the love of God. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you. Which moves us to our last point this morning. And this is long and convoluted, so just listen to it. The reason we never turn back. The reason true believers never turn back is because God has given us to Christ and Christ has promised the Father to never let us go. It's a done deal. The Almighty God himself secures and guarantees our unending union with Christ. John 6, I didn't highlight it as much for you when we were kind of doing our review earlier in the message, but woven into John 6, Jesus keeps bringing up these statements about divine election. All that the Father gives me, I will no wise cast out. This is the will of my Father, that everyone he draws to myself, to him, he will lose none, but raise him up on the last day. True believer, rest 
in the sovereign, secure grip of God's grace. Because in that grip, we find the love and the blood of Christ who covers us, cleanses us, and makes us acceptable to God no matter our doubt, no matter our failings, no matter our sin. We are his, and he is ours. This is the beauty behind this divine election we find in John 6. You have nothing to fear. So what do we do? What do we do? Sermon's drawing to a conclusion. What's the difference between the disciple that's toying around in the crowd and the one that's clinging to Christ with the arms of faith? Belief. Oh, church, see Christ. Trust Christ. Follow after Christ. Put down your presuppositions. Put down your erroneous theology. Pick up Christ and cling to him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, that we might find you now to be good and loving and kind. We thank you for patiently enduring with us in our sin, our doubt, and our unbelief. But, Lord, I pray for all of us here that any of us who have been playing around in the crowd that we would find ourselves clinging to Christ this day. That we would not turn back. That you would keep us close. That we would find ourselves securely enjoying the bread of life. Amen.